You're listening to another technology policy podcast here at CSIS. Today we're talking to Don Bray. Don Bray is the director for cyber training at Raytheon. He spent 35 years in the Army working on a range of assignments having to do with cybersecurity and helped set up some of the foundational Army cyber units. A lot of work in the signals intelligence world. Thank you for doing this. What's on your plate these days? So I'm um, actually with Raytheon, director of cyber training. Yep. So I'm going to do two things I really enjoy. Uh-huh. Make a difference in the cyberspace and continue to train for high-consequence missions in the DOD and mm-hmm. the civilian sector. So I'm stationed out of Orlando uh, in the Global Training Solution office, and I work closely with um, DOD on training solutions. How's the training going? I mean, how do people seem to respond to it? Well, cybersecurity training is always in high demand uh, since some cyber threats are are constantly evolving and constantly hitting us in many sectors. But uh, we do training beyond that. And uh, just any training in high-consequence missions is kind of what we focus on. And uh, I think you never be um, too ready for cyber. And cyber is definitely a team sport where you have to go beyond individual training and do the hands-on and team-level training. Where would you put us at having built a workforce? Where would you say, like, Army skill set is? I think we've made a lot of progress in building the cyber mission force. I think that was the right move. And I think we've actually um, pretty close to being um, where we want to be. Now we just have to be able to continue to train that force and have realistic training environments like the persistent cyber training environment effort that DOD is pursuing, as well as find a way to sustain them and offer, you know, lucrative opportunities throughout the force, as well as uh, have a updated talent management strategies to keep the talent within the DOD space. But I think we're doing good. Is is PCTE your biggest uh, project? Uh, I work uh, on PCTE, uh, Raytheon uh-huh. at all. We're pursuing a lot of the cyber oh, yeah. efforts and making a lot of cyber investments. Um, PCTE is one of the ones we're most excited about um, down in the Global yeah. Training Solution Office just because it's a huge gap today, providing a distributed training environment to allow us to ensure that the Cyber Mission Force has a place to train as they fight and to train at the speed of cyber. Uh, if you don't have an environment similar to PCTE, it would be really be hard to keep standards coming mm-hmm. across the DOD force, but mm-hmm. also to keep the skills sharp because the things are constantly changing. How do people react to the training? Uh, you can tell good training by the reaction, right? <laughs> uh, cyber, cyber. Yes, uh, you can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Particularly in the cyber force, yeah. uh, they can quickly recognize good training oh, yeah. from mediocre training <laughs> to a waste of time. So uh, you, you let the user feedback uh, in uh-huh. your training space um, be the guide, as well as when you're developing capabilities. You want to get those capabilities in the hands of the user community as quick as possible to get that feedback and rapidly turn that feedback and move to the next iteration. Is this both offensive and defensive training? I mean, what is it? What is it? It's just how to operate in the environment. It's uh, full spectrum training on whatever our customers uh, uh-huh. require. Obviously, the Cyber Mission Force is doing full spectrum operations, right. cyber EW, and so we're there to provide any type of training that's required. What kind of skills do people need coming in? I mean, what is it you want out of a trainee? Do they come in at zero? Do they have some experience? I mean, what's the... Um, most people have some level of experience, um, probably from general IT or general networking background, mm-hmm. maybe security in a different context. And you build upon those skills. You're really looking for 
heavy STEM backgrounds for the mm-hmm. majority of the force. Um, not to exclude um, backgrounds outside of STEM, um, but a lot of the basic foundational protection and network security are very STEM focused mm-hmm. and very systematic. And then you want to build upon that and, and start bringing in a broader group of talent mm-hmm. um, um, broader than STEM that you can focus on. You brought up cyber and EW, and that's been a real growth area. Can you talk a little bit about that, the blend between cyber as it moves into what used to be the EW space? And maybe talk about how the training deals with that, because it it's mobile. It's a different environment. Yeah, well, cyber and EW are both areas of growth. In mm-hmm. both areas, you have to train and provide capabilities for. Um, they complement each other, and the cyber mission force was really designed mm-hmm. to conduct full-spectrum operations in cyber EW um, space IO, as mm-hmm. well as at all levels of war, from tactical, operational, mm-hmm. strategic. And when, particularly when you get into the operational and tactical level, the EW will be play a crucial part. So both cyber and EW are growth areas that we're focusing on training for both spaces. Obviously, the services in DOD are thinking is important in making um, new investments in that area in terms of manpower, new strength, and new capabilities, and we want to assist in that space. Um, Michael Hayden and I were on a panel once. In fact, we were the panel. And uh, he said that uh, Air Force was the lead service. This is probably a dangerous question. <laughs> Air Force was the lead service. We can cut it out later. Air Force was the lead service uh, when it came to cyber capabilities. This was a few years ago. And I said that I didn't think that was right. I thought it was Navy. And he said that, well, we could at least both agree that Army was in third place. I was. I would have to agree with him a few years ago. It could have been Air Force or Navy, yeah. but there's no question I think it's the Army today. Uh, Army made some uh, a or significant investments early on in the stand-up to Cyber Mission Force in the way they organized their headquarters and structures mm-hmm. that are paying dividends today. And I think um, they're definitely a leader in the space today amongst the services. What are, what are uh, some of those? I mean, like, is it the thing at West Point or what is it that? Well, that's one. One of them, and as ACI would be the Institute at West Point. But in addition to that, they've decided to move their headquarters to Fort Gordon and make Fort Gordon their cyber center excellence. Mm-hmm. So there'll be a single location that has their doctrine, the schoolhouse, mm-hmm. the operational unit, so they can gain from those synergies, as well as they're creating new capabilities down in their tactical forces to help um, with cyber and EW space. Mm-hmm. I think all the services and DOD at large are all in on cyber, and they're all are moving forward with their teams and capabilities. And uh, taking the lead service role is common in DOD, in particular in the cyberspace. Uh, currently, uh, Unified Platform, the Air Force is serving as the lead service for that effort, and the Army is serving as the lead service for a persistent cyber training environment. And so that's not uncommon to have a service to lead an effort just to divide the, the work um, load and to ensure that Cybercom receives the capability that they need in a timely manner. How did you get into cyber? Well, I started um, back in 1983, actually, when I joined the Army early on. Holy cow. <laughs> early on, uh, I was uh, uh, in, a, in a role that I worked in a SCIF facility. Uh, I also had an additional duty of providing this uh, encryption devices and the keys for the network systems, as well as do crypto facility inspections. Those were all additional duties. My primary role was to operate mainframe, mainframe computer systems. Which one was that, do you know? 
Uh, I worked on uh, Spare Univac. Uh, we also were training. Mine was at Deck 10. Deck 10. Okay. So you understand where we were back in that time. The Stone Age. Stone Age, right? And, and now I'm working for one of the most technology advanced companies, so it's full full circle. <laughs> but back then, you you would have to know a number of languages that are kind of old today. Mm-hmm. Um Pascal and Ada and Fortran, things like that, mm-hmm. as well as coding um, languages like um, um, Bardock Code and Epidict, and in addition to early, early um, predecessors to Unicode and ASCIS and things like that. So those experiences and also working in additional roles like information security officer roles kind of prepared me early on in the cyberspace, uh, early before it was called cyber mm-hmm. at that time. Either it was information assurance or information security or some type of umbrella like that. But all of those disciplines have kind of come together in the cybersecurity realm. One of the problems I've heard from other services is that initially there wasn't a good career path for the becoming a, a cyber operator. What was it like for you and how did you, how did you end up moving up the ranks? There? Uh, it wasn't a career path designated as cyber early on. Uh, most of it was either information systems or information assurance or something similar to that. Uh, I started off in the information systems and information security realm. And uh, I worked a number of jobs in that space, working on mainframes and security systems. I actually received my uh, master's degree in information insurance in 2005. Mm -hmm. And then I went into a number of cyber roles where I was responsible for training different types of Army cyber teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first type of teams I was training was incident response teams. At that time, I was responsible for defending the Army network. Uh, Army cyber had... What year was that? Uh, that was um, 2010. Uh-huh. That must have been a busy time. It was. Uh, Army Cybers was a new headquarters, and mm-hmm. they hadn't taken on that role yet, and so I still had that mission. And then I turned the Defense of the Network mission over to Army Cyber Headquarters and stood up uh, another type of teams called Cyber Op 4 teams. These teams were designed to go out to the Army training centers and to simulate the adversary on the training networks, mm-hmm. and so these were small uh, offensive-focused teams. And then I moved on to stand up the Cyber Protection Brigade at Fort Gordon, and and we really had two types of teams there. We had the Cyber Protection Teams, which people are familiar with from the Cyber Mission Force, but we also stood up what we call CCRI teams. They're Command Cyber Readiness Inspection Teams, Mm -hmm. and these teams went out and did um, inspection and compliance surveys of the network, and so helped us kind of improve our posture. We're looking back on that and looking at where we are now. What would, what would you say the improvement has been if people were going to do an inspection, a readiness inspection? Assuming there, I'm assuming there has been improvement. There's been improvement. There's there's more improvement to be made. I think we're a little bit more aware of the vulnerabilities and threats that exist. We need to do a better job of protecting those and leveraging automation and some of the newer technologies like AI to help us see ourselves better and to help us to understand what's happening to make better decisions early on. But I do think there's been an improvement over time, for sure. Did you have to invent your own career path? How did it work? You, you sort of knew what you wanted to do and moved in that direction? or Well, I'd always been in the IT security space, and so cybersecurity was a natural evolution in terms of having a career path in the service uh, it took a little while before the services created the cyber career path. I uh, initially was a um, communication officer, a signal officer in the Army, 
until the early 2000s. They had a separate career path they created called the Information Systems Security Officer, and I decided to take that career path. And at that point, that was the closest cyber uh, career path that the Signal Corps had in the Army. Uh, since then, the Army has created a cyber career field, so it's much more structured today and much more thought out today than it was at that time. What did you uh, think the leadership thought of this? How have you seen Army leadership change when it comes to thinking about cyber? So we had the, the so I know the West Point guys pretty well, and they're really impressive. But you know, ten years ago, that wasn't there. So. What was Army leadership's first reaction? How have they changed? Well, initially it was hard to buy um, not just Army leadership, any um, tactical leaders, maneuver leaders, uh, because you're asking for investment in time, personnel, to be diverted from other mission sets. So it's kind of hard to, for them to wrap their head around why would they invest in this space and to divert resources from other spaces. But as we start to see uh, more and more large-scale attacks uh, around the world, and as we start integrating the cyber training into the tactical training, where the Army leadership and the tactical leaders could understand the value, uh, then things start to change. How hard is it to incorporate cyber into doctrine? How far along are we in that? Well, the doctrine has laid out uh, how we're going to conduct cyberspace operations. And then you have to ensure that the institutional services can train the new new, uh, entries according to the doctrine. That's your job now, right? Well, from an industry standpoint, we're absolutely helping to do do that. But also, doctrine is just a guide, right? You actually Uh have to train and conduct operations and and have a mechanism for circle back and updating doctrine. And so... As a guide, I think it's in the right place. Uh, we just have to now get operational experience and time and training exercises to validate and update the doctrine as, as the cyberspace matures. One of the debates that people used to have is where do you want to locate cyber capability? And maybe it's been largely resolved. I mean, there was a debate for a while. Do you need it at the brigade combat team level? Do you keep it at divisional? In some ways, that's been fixed with Cyber Command becoming operational and the national mission teams. But did you have to go through that? And where do you think it ought to be? I mean, do you like the model we have now? I think the model we have now is the right model. I think the model we have now is going towards a SOCOM or a special yeah. ops model. Um, where you, you, you chop teams to right. the Right. You, you maintain centralized control and then you assign, chop, or attach teams when necessary. Uh, cyber ch- changes so often, is so highly complex, it would be hard to keep the, trains, the teams properly trained if they were not um, maintained in a centralized type fashion uh, until needed. <clears throat> if you actually assign them and disperse them across uh, the, the workforce, then it would be hard to maintain Standards at the same level, and hard to train them on the same scale. So I think the model they're following is kind of modeled after the SOCOM, the Special Operations Command, and I think that's the right way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do your training modules, how do you how do you update the threat? How, how do you do threat modeling for the guys you train? Because it does evolve. Well, we do a lot of cyber protection services and cybersecurity 
efforts across. So we have threat models and threat tools and capabilities that help keep us informed. But more importantly, you really poll the user base and you get that feedback from the user community as well. And so between our threat modeling and threat systems and the user community that we interact with. Oh, that's, that's interesting. What does the user community see as the big threat of the week? <laughs> well, uh, I know in the Army when we stood up the Cyber Mission Force, we were kind of directed to have a train-operate-train model. We didn't go out and expect that um, all the users would know everything, and the space was so dynamic, it was going to take a while for us to get out there and really understand and hone our TTPs. And I think today they still have a trained model. They bring those lessons learned from operations back into the training base as quick as possible, including the threat lessons learned. And when you train people, what is, do you have a red team that does it? Is it? I'm sure they're different models, but is it people go in a virtual environment do they face something that's automated? Do they have people on the other side? Is there a red team? What is it you do when you do this? Well, largely today there's a training audience and then there's a red team or red force or yeah. op four uh, that's providing that adversary TTPs. And then there's some type of control cell or white cell that's ensuring that the training audience is meeting the task. So it's kind of like an exercise. It is. Yeah. Okay. And this is very model after the tactical maneuver type. Oh, sure. Um, DOT type training models is very similar in cyber as well. And uh, today, I think largely that um, red team, the op four team, is uh, manual personnel. Mm -hmm. But we're progressing toward automated op fours and leveraging AI and machine mm -hmm. learning to help with that. When you say leveraging AI, what do you mean? What do you have in mind? Well, AI could go a long way in just automating tasks that right. are mundane. And there's so much data that's out on the network that it's hard for operators to sift through the data and find out where if that's an issue or not. So you want to leverage AI as possible to take all the mundane tasks and take them off the table. There's so much data in the DOD environment, private industry environments today. Uh, there's really a treasure trove of information there, but you have to have the right data platforms to digest, ingest all that information, do event correlations, and quickly allow the operators to understand what's going on. Do you do field operations? Do you do field training? I mean, what is it a sandbox, or do you take people out? I thought for a while Army had something where people actually drove around and did things in the field. But what is it you do for the training environment? We have both. Uh, definitely virtual environments is kind of the platform that yeah. PCT would be built on. It would be a global distributed virtual environment to allow the forces mm -hmm. to train from where they're located and to still be, have the realism of the real world. Mm -hmm. But also integrate training into exercises and training centers. And so you have to be... Uh, fully integrated into the operational processes that services. Mm -hmm. So you're not doing cyber for cyber's sake, you're doing cyber to support the mission. Mm -hmm. um, and how much of this is focused on defending actual systems, defending weapon systems, as opposed to defending networks? So, you know, in Navy and in Air Force, a lot of it is people want to get into airplanes or air defense systems or ship controls or what's what's it like for for army what's it like for what you're doing well everything has to be defended so yeah. i would say you categorize it as network systems and platforms so all of those areas uh -huh. have to be defended by all services so army will have equivalent systems that they will ensure they want um, protective and so it's not just networks 
That's a big point there, that cyber is much more than just a network. It has to get out into the broader systems, platforms uh -huh. um, that are important to the organization. Do you think everybody's gotten that message? I'm probably not. A lot okay. still equate cyber with the network only. Yeah. But you have to look broader than the network. And definitely in the cyber mission force, uh, part of this charter is definitely broader than the network. How's cyber going to change EW? EW used to be kind of, it wasn't dynamic, and cyber's dynamic. And so what's it going to look like when you have a sort of cyber-enabled EW? I don't see it changing EW. I think they leverage each other. Uh, a lot of what we do today is in the wireless space. So EW and RF enable cyber, and cyber enabling EW and RF is going to be part of the norm. It already is today. As we use more and more of the... Uh, electromagnetic spectrum and more wireless devices, then you're going to have to have capability and defenses in RF and EW space. How much of the space is going to be defined by uh, commercial products? So the one I used to laugh about was with a Fitbit, everyone knows, but you know, if you see 10,000 cell phones moving in the same direction, it could be a hint. So how how much of this is defined by commercial technology, like 5G, mobile phones? consumer devices, where where does that fit into your, your sort of cyber defense spectrum? Well, not just in cyber. Uh, industry has been providing technology to DOD many years, and also D DOD provide technologies yeah. to industry as well. So I think uh, in the modern battlefield, you have to be prepared for commercial products as well as military products. Uh, you will have to encounter both, and so you have to be prepared for both. I think we just look for a best of breed, and you look for open source and huh. technologies that will allow you to be flexible enough to keep up with changing, the changing paces of cyber. So you guys write your own code for this stuff then, the Raytheon, you write your own uh, code for the PCT or... Because well, open source is what triggered that. Cause <laughs> well, PCT is a government program yeah. uh, that is uh, going to allow the cyber mission force to train. But um, what they've communicated is that they're looking for agile development process. Uh -huh. They're looking for open architecture. Sounds familiar. That allow them yeah. to be flexible enough to keep up with the speed of cyber. And uh, we can help with any of that. Have you seen uh, Deliver Uncompromised? Have you seen that one? It, it's just it's an acquisition thing about how to make sure you get software that's trustworthy. But it's, we don't have to talk about that. It's probably not, not on the radar. Software assurance, uh, that's another big space, and software transformation is yeah. an area that we are focusing on, but that is an important component of it. More and more of the networks and more and more of the application are being software-defined. And so software assurance and how you do secure coding is an important component of that. What do you want out of your trainees when they leave? What is it you're looking for from them? One, I want to make sure we met their expectations, they've uh, tr met their training objectives. Um, but the feedback from the user community will really um, provide you an avenue to improve the training as you go forward. Mm. But you can immediately tell um, if the training was useful to them just because they'll be, um, you have to make them stop, they'll continue to want to work, uh, they'll continue oh, to ask for the next That's a good sign. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, particularly in this space, they will work through the night, through the weekend, if you didn't stop really? and move on. And that's when you know you actually have uh, effective training. They, they want to continue to improve. And this is all ranks, or is it enlisted? I mean, what's the... Across um, the services and industry is really all ranks. 
Uh, the Cyber Mission Force is enlisted all the way to officers, different skill sets, and um, I think each of the services are kind of working on their talent, talent management strategy, oh. uh, how to properly um, man the teams and what's the right structure to maintain over time. Admiral Roughhead, when he was the CNO, once told me he, he was wondering how you keep – he wanted to recruit hackers. He realized to keep them, he might not want them to always get a haircut or uh, go to sea every six months. Um, what do you think about recruitment pool? You're just – is it important to recruit hackers or do you now feel like you can take people with you know some educational background and turn them into what we need? Yeah, when I was commander, we always had this question about um, do we want to bring the hackers in and have a different set of standards for yeah. them than traditional military roles? Uh, I, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, obviously, there's different hmm. opinions out mm -hmm. there. I think in the end, you want to ensure that how that person is trained is you employ them in the way that you intend them to be employed. Mm -hmm. And so just the other systematic um, traditional military roles you have to put up with is just all part of training and the process, particularly in the way we're conducting cyber operations in the DOD space, was very much a team sport, and, and we need the team to be very similar and so we can have a consistent result each and every time. So with that said, I think there's always room for a flexible talent management strategy where you can bring in civilians into DOD and allow them to um, go back out to their civilian force and workforce. And uh, I think several of the services are looking at uh, innovative ways to bring in the latest talent from the outside in a different role, uh, assisting the military, but maybe not in uniform directly. So maybe they have a happy medium and they can have both. They can have the person that don't have to get a haircut, and then you have the ones that are in uniform and a haircut working side by side. So at the Naval Academy, for example, which I just happen to know about because they're close, uh, cyber has gone from, it's a new program for them, it's a new major, and it's gone from being like zero to, I think next year it'll be the second most popular major uh, on the uh, in the academy. Where, how do you see people looking at cyber as a career path now? How are, is this a field people want to get into? Is it, and why do they want to get into it? Uh, I think it is a field that people want to get into. Um, you see a number of universities and even tech schools creating mm -hmm. cyber programs. Um, there's um, what's called Cyber Patriot, which mm -hmm. is a program down at the high school level mm -hmm. across the nation. And there's even programs that are pushing down into the middle school level. And I think it should be an elementary school, actually. Wow. They're digital natives. Oh, yeah. And uh -huh. uh, we're going to have major shortfalls in the cybersecurity workforce going forward as we continue to expand um, cyber devices and cyber networks in our everyday lives. So I think it's a lucrative field. Uh, I think there will be plenty of interest in it, but we're going to have a hard time fill in all of the positions that are going to be required. Do you know how popular it is as a MOS? I mean, is it like, where does it rank or does it? Uh, I don't know where it ranks. Hey, most, of the, most of the uh, midshipmen still want to be aviators, but right. the major they're doing is cyber. So, Right. Well, coming out of the academies for each services, mm -hmm. I imagine whatever is their marquee, Work role for that service is kind of which most of them are expiring to. Yeah. But I don't think there's real shortages in mm. um, having cyber security as cyber officers as well as cyber workforce in terms of the enlisted. So it's not um, – mm. 
it's not um, a career field where they're having significant shortages. I think the challenge is um, being able to take those people that are interested through the entire training program successfully and then having a flexible enough talent management strategy to keep them. What I found that a lot of the cyber operators um, didn't want to change their particular work role or Mm. particular specialty. Uh, And you will want to encourage them to cross-train. You will want them to continue to progress in the field, but they tend to like to pigeonhole into a particular area they like. And so we just had to have a flexible enough structure where they can still do that and it wouldn't negatively impact them. What's what's the most popular pigeonhole? I I would say, well, I wouldn't say there's one. Uh, If you think about it from uh, you have network specialists and you have tools and software specialists, and then you have system specialists, and you have pen testers. Mm-hmm. And so whatever the field that they're comfortable with and they're in, uh, unfortunately, we tend to like to see um, people progress in mm-hmm. our military current human management structure and talent management structure. So they would like to just stay in the same role as long as possible. If they could do 20 years in that same job, they would. Not only in that role, but also not moving around as much. Mm-hmm. Get more stability in one place. Oh, sure. Particularly in cyber, where you can do a lot of things remotely. Yeah. I think if we step back, we can come up with a strategy that kind of helps stabilize that and keep people in longer. How does jointness work in the cyberspace? I think jointness is absolutely required in the cyberspace. Um, I said if we're going to model after the SOCOM model, that is a joint model. And it's such a diverse space that touches every aspect of the services in our industry as well that we have to approach it from a joint perspective. Um, Joint war fighting Mm -hmm. is kind of the way the DOD operates, and cyber shouldn't be any different. Is cyber a purple force? Uh, from a cyber mission force standpoint, it is. Uh, we have a larger force than the cyber mission force, obviously. Yeah. We have that day-to-day cybersecurity workforce and these services that may not be as purple because they're kind of focused on the, the service networks. But the cyber mission force, I would say, is a purple force. How does jointness affect what you do now? How does it affect developing training programs? And Well, a number of the major DOD programs in cyberspace are joint programs. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, Air Force is the lead for unified platform, mm-hmm. and the Army is the lead service for PCTE. That is a platform that's going to be provided to all of the DOD CMFs, regardless of service. So it's been built with jointness from the start. But even prior to that, um, the cyber flag and the number of cybercom exercises or joint exercises um, and cybercom and stuff, obviously. So I think we started off with jointness built in and the cyber mission force and to continue to evolve. What are the challenges that you've got now in the job? What are the, what are the things you have to work on and maybe smooth out a little? I think keeping up with technology is always going to be a challenge. Um, and there's always a lag time between the latest technology coming mm-hmm. out and you understand it well enough to create training and POI to support it. A lot of that, as I said earlier, we'll get from the user feedback doing operations, mm-hmm. and we'll also get from our own feedback from our cyber protection services and threat intelligence platforms where we can quickly take those changes and put in. But it'll be hard to keep pace with the changes. That's one challenge. Another challenge would be just allowing the forces to have an opportunity to operate as a joint force 
more often, right? Mm. A lot of the training is at the service level until we get PCTE in place, then we'll be able to train as a jump force more often. And then I think that challenge of ensuring that they're trained to a joint standard and maintaining that standard will kind of go away a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Sounds like your customers are pretty vocal. Yeah, well, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, but it's not just unique to the cyberspace. We want to ensure that if you're going to take an agile development approach, then you're looking for that feedback, and you want to get those iterations in and change as quick as possible. So the customers and the user base being vocal, that's a good thing. Anything I missed? Anything you want to say? This is your, Or anything you think we should hit? Yeah, the only thing I would like to add, I, I would say I think the Cyber Mission Force and the cyber industry at large, I think we have to just keep an eye on the ball in terms of emerging technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think- And for you, those are AI mainly? AI, machine learning, machine quant- learning. Quantum, quantum computing, yeah. obviously. Yeah. I think any of the technologies that's gonna help us with decision-making and help us see ourselves are gonna be very important now and, and in the future. Only with those technologies we'll be able to do event correlations, get early warning to make the appropriate decisions about our defenses. Well, thank you for doing this. Hey, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.